Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. When asked to define obscenity back in 1964, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously, if unhelpfully, said, I know it when I see it. I think most people have an idea of what they consider pornographic, but those ideas vary wildly depending on culture, time period, education, or religion. One person's porn is another statue of David. Today, literature containing any sexual content is frequently dismissed as pornography, something our friends in Romance Landia know all too well. But no matter how you define pornography, the implication always seems to be that it's dumb, that it says nothing and takes nothing to produce, which is insulting, not to mention wrong. If you can move past the taboo of sexual content to really study it as literature, well, that's when it gets interesting. 18th century pornography in Britain and France was probably not what you'd expect. Anyone reading it today might call it anachronistically feminist or, dare I say, woke for defying the gender binary, exploring non-heteropenetrative sex, and addressing issues of consent. It was surprisingly progressive in many ways, and the story leading up to it was at least as important as the sex itself. Today we're talking about that with Dr. Kathleen Luby, author of What Pornography Knows, Sex and Social Protest Since the 18th Century. We talk about the changing definitions of sex, dildos and female empowerment, LGBTQ content and gender fluidity, and the surprising link to modern romance novels. This is one of my favorite interviews so far, and I hope that you enjoy it. All right, my guest today is Dr. Kathleen Luby, author of the new book, What Pornography Knows, Sex and Social Protest Since the 18th Century. Welcome, Kathleen. We're so glad to have you. Hi, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, this is such an exciting book, and I don't think that I've ever read anything that looks at pornography in quite this way, so I'm very excited to talk to you about it. So let's start at the beginning. What was considered pornography in the 18th century? How was it distributed and who was reading it? This is a great question um, and a hard question, surprisingly. Um, pornography as a term wasn't used yet to describe literature or art in the 18th century. That came about in the 19th century. So which what's really interesting to me about studying 18th century pornography is that it's sort of everywhere. It's woven into poetry. It's woven into medical treatises. It's woven into political satire and novels um, and pornographic novels likewise contain moral fiction and philosophy and scientific theory and um, sort of, you know, moral reflections and things like that. So it's a messy kind of hybrid roving discourse in the 18th century, which makes it for me exciting to research because um, you kind of have to look everywhere for it and let yourself be surprised, you know, by what's in there. Um, 
it would have been sold to my knowledge. I'm not a really strict book historian. I do book history um, in my book. And by book history, I mean studying like the material artifacts of the original books, you know, as they were published. I do some work with that, but I'm not the kind of book historian who tracks how books were sold, you know, and, and how many and where. But I, I can say that most pornography was not republished many, many times. It was a little bit fleeting, a little bit ephemeral, like it would be on the shelf it would sell out. It wouldn't necessarily get reprinted. The author's name probably wouldn't be on it. Um, so when it was gone, it was gone. And that means it can be hard to find in libraries. Um, but it would have been sold beside other kinds of popular literature. And by popular literature, I just mean like vernacular stuff that, you know, people would have read like um, religious texts or um, political pamphlets or novels, you know, more traditionally defined. Um, and their titles sometimes would allude to their exciting content, like the adventures of a young gentleman or, <laughs> you know, yeah, like gallantry. And, you know, they would use sort of keywords, passion, romance. Um, even the word novel itself could kind of mean, you know, racy or salacious material in the 18th century. Um, but they would have been sold really close by to things that we recognize as highly moralistic fiction. So they were really kind of woven in. So it's really hard to say who read the pornography, but I'm convinced sort of on a gut level that because it would have been sold along with and beside other kinds of novels, that it's likely that both genders read pornography, even though we tend to think of it as a, you know, books written for men, which is nothing I've never really believed that 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 of hypothesis about pornography um and it probably would have been read by you know literacy was very different than it is now um the laboring classes wouldn't have had money um or time probably to read or perhaps would not have been um literate in the sense of moving through a, a long book um but I do think that these books probably would have been shared passed around by people um yeah, maybe read aloud uh, to one another. I don't think they were particularly secret books, in other words, which is how we tend to sometimes think pornography works. Mm -hmm. They were accessible. You could go down to, you know, the equivalent to Barnes and Noble or whatever and just pick one up. You could, and they would usually not be lavishly illustrated. So they would be as cheap as they could be. You know, they, they weren't cheap in the sense of like books, paper and books get cheaper in the 19th century, but they were cheap-ish. You know, they weren't done up so that only aristocratic people could afford them. Um, they were definitely intended to be as accessible as possible. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and you make the point right away that pornography at this time wasn't just focused on heteropenetrative sex. Did the definition of sex change during the 18th century? Or how did pornography contribute to the definition and how did it question it? That's a great question. Um, so there are historians of sex and reproduction and sexuality who believe sex did change in the 18th century um, and that across um, the century, sex became more strictly defined as penetrative, seminal, vaginal sex. Um, that is, that was associated like maybe with marriage, but definitely with pregnancy rates. Um, mm -hmm. There's a historian, Henry Abelov, who has an excellent and important short article about that, um, that, that I draw on in my book. Um, yeah, and, and his point as a queer historian is to, sort of argue or suggest that um, 
that development, that kind of cultural pressure toward productivity and sex relegated other kinds of sex, like anal sex or um, oral sex, or just like touching and petting and exploring to foreplay. Like he argues that the concept of foreplay kind of emerged as a result of that stricter, more hetero um, kind of focused sex. And I'm convinced by that. Um, I see evidence I see evidence of that, particularly as you move from the 18th to the 19th century. Um, and so, yeah, where my book begins and where, you know, where I'm trained, which is as an 18th century literary historian, um, sex is much more exploratory. I mean, there's a lot of description of heterosexual and heteropenetrative sex, but there's also a lot of descriptions of women sharing beds together and experimenting with one another, um, even if it leads up as it often does to heterosexuality. There are these key sort of scenes and experiences that are imagined between women, often how young women actually learn about sex and learn about like what's going on in their genitals and that you can put fingers in them and, you know, that um, other things might go in them later or not, you know, all of these things. Um, there's a fair amount of literature that describes the use of dildos and strap-ons, um, mm -hmm. both as things to wear and, you know, transgender um, but also as means of sexual pleasure and seduction and, um, and yeah, sort of experiences like that. So um, the, the literature that I work on in the book, which treats pornography quite seriously, as you know, right? I don't, I don't think it's a jokey genre. I think there's a lot of social meaning in it. It tends to focus on heterosexuality, in, in my view, because it wants to explore the gender difference that was becoming so sedimented in the 18th century. Like there had to be, I, I actually think, and certainly this is written in pornographic texts. Um, I think everyone in the 18th century knew that there was equity between men and women in terms of intellect and, you know, capability and morality and sort of internal stuff. Um, therefore, stories had to be invented that put forth the idea that women were less capable of intellectual activity, social standing, um, political leadership, right? I think these are things that 18th century people knew women were capable of. And sexual contact was a way that authors could basically show women having cultural expectations assigned to their body that weren't there to begin with, if that makes sense. It's a very kind of academic argument. Um, but the way this manifests in pornography is, yes, there are sort of lavish and gratuitous descriptions of genital sex, but there are also conversations that lead up to that sex in which women say no, or they say yes, or they say maybe. <laughs> and men do different things to try to gain access. And it's that sort of conversation, both literally in dialogue, but also just like staged over and over in pornographic literature that I think is highly significant. I think this is the way that authors and readers were exploring how bodies come together, what the negotiations are between people to sort of um, set the terms of what sex will mean. And women had so much to say in that moment because the social consequences of them having sex were so profound um, from getting pregnant to being socially ruined if they weren't married yet, um, to becoming a wife, which meant the erasure of their legal personhood under 18th century marriage law, right? It meant they became property. Um, and there were so many pressures on women, you know, from all sides to either 
you know, remain virgins or to become non-virgins in very specific ways that they had a lot to say when they were approached with penetrative sex. It was not funny or, you know, blithe. It was definitely a place where authors, I think, experiment with what women really wanted to say about it. Mm, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you you asked if it affected how people had sex. And I that that I can't say because I'm not a historian of sexuality, but I like to think that 18th century readers didn't discount that part of pornography. Like, yes, they were there in part to read about the sex, but I don't think they were zooming past all of the things that came around and before it, which mm -hmm. is how we think of pornography today. We think, oh, it's four and a half minutes long on Pornhub and there's no plot and all this stuff, like nothing matters except the genital sex. And I actually think that's all wrong. I think that we're always absorbing the whole text, you know, where something is shot, what the people say to each other, what their races and genders are, um, what their socioeconomic kind of surroundings look like. Like that's all information that we're interpreting all the time. And I think 18th century readers were doing the same thing. How it impacted the actual sex they had is beyond me to, to know, but I can certainly speculate that they understood sex was a uh, um, socially consequential coupling and action. Mm, of course, yeah. And um, and as as you just mentioned, you also wrote that pornography is more of a series of conversations rather than a fixed genre with a defined archive. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea? What what other kind of conversations were they having? Yeah. Um. So they were having conversations about like gender equity, mm -hmm. about the body, about how sex shapes a life. So in pornography. Um, conversations about what contributes to the shaping of an adult person are really powerful. So in that sense, um, there's one book uh, that I look at in detail in my book called The History of the Human Heart. And it appends footnotes, these really um, bloated philosophical footnotes to sex acts. And some of them discuss how to choose a tutor for your child that will prepare them for the world properly. Um, some of them speculate on uh, heterosexual friendship. Can men and women be friends without wanting to have sex with each other? Which is like a when Harry met Sally argument too, right? In the 80s, like that's a conversation that still is in pop culture. Um, there are footnotes about insemination. Uh, when insemination happens, when does the soul get animated in a fetus? Um, there are footnotes about the most significant one for my project is um, about who invented the concept of modesty and imposed it on women. Um, and if it basically, it argues that, you know, contrary to a lot of 18th century thought, modesty was not natural in women. Chastity was not natural in women the way that people wanted to assert um, so that women would act as though modesty was their natural, you know, state. Um, but rather these footnotes and these themes play out in other texts as well. But this text that I'm referring to just does it the most explicitly. Um, they're really measuring and looking at all of these ways that a desiring full person is shaped. Um, and sex is one of those things. But what I think is interesting is that these texts are convinced that sex acts and sexual action are influenced by and connected to all of these other questions about religion, education, um, psychological developments, 
moral philosophy, um, the gender binary, you know, which is, I also think 18th century people knew was fake the way we, I hope, think it's fake now. Um, yeah, so it's it's almost unpredictable. Like I can't name all the topics that are engaged by pornography because pornography sort of situates sex at the crux of all of these different social forces. And it can seemingly talk about anything. Like it's really capable of moving in all these different directions. And, and the one thing I'll just add that I don't do a ton with in this book, but other historians have, um, is that pornography was often used in political satire, right? To make fun of parliamentarians or kings or queens. Um, yeah, as a way of, of uh, asking sharp, um, yeah, sort of political questions about corruption and truth and authenticity. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I wanted to ask you, um, in what ways is pornography political, or was it, I should say, uh, was it influenced by politics? And did it have any influence on politics and, and popular culture at the time? It depends in some ways on how we're defining politics, right? If we mean party politics, and actual governmental politics, that's not really my wheelhouse. But I, I can say that at the at the end of the 17th century during the restoration um there was a libertine poet the earl of rochester who oh yes was very you know right who doesn't know him um he was very good friends with king charles ii um but was such good friends with him that he took great license in satirizing his leadership by satirizing how much influence his mistresses had on him. So he wrote poems to that effect. Um, and I think he got banished from court for a while for, you know, for that material. So that to me reads as kind of like inside jokiness among aristocratic libertines kind of um, locker room, to, you know, the the restoration equivalent of locker room jokes, the the way we would make them today. About a hundred years later, at the end of the 18th century, and I can't speak um, specifically to this, but the literary historian um, Kelly Fleming uh, has a series of articles on this uh, this political sort of development that I would refer people to. Um, there were really strong questions about corruption in political elections and parliamentary elections and questions of whether sex workers were being used to sway the votes in particular counties. Um, and uh, yeah, so pornography was basically used as a way of raising skepticism in voters about the, I guess, truthfulness or validity of electoral politics. Um, but if we define politics more like, you know, sort of social critique or questions of power, um, you know, I would say that pornography brings to the fore the awareness that like the body is really often unjustly used in the power dynamics of any, you know, modern society. Um, and I guess by that, I just mean, I kind of sort of said this before, but the way that that the consequences of sex um, for women were so acute that the power, you know, they sort of show in their negotiations around sex and frankly, sexual violence often, coercion, non-consent and so forth. They sort of show the politics of how a life can be so profoundly shaped, you know, by one passing moment over which they may or may not have control or authority at all. Um, so I think in the broad sense that we mean politics, it is highly political, um, but in, you know, not, it's not always directly anti-authoritarian in the way that like French pornography really was, but, but British pornography, not so much. What was the difference between English and French pornography at the time? 
Yeah. So French pornography, um, I keep citing other scholars, but James Steintrager um, and um, Robert Darnton are two, and there are others, are two great historians of French pornography in the Enlightenment. Because there was revolutionary um, foment in France throughout the 18th century, um, of course, culminating in 1789, but leading up to that, um, pornography became, was to my understanding, written by aristocrats, tied very closely to um, sort of staunch materialist philosophical doctrine as a kind of argument about a radical democratic politics. It was um, it was manifestly satirizing the church, the Catholic Church in France, and the ancien regime. So the you know the sort of uh, deeply inequitable social structures that England thought it didn't have, right? Like England, whether it's true or not, defined itself in some ways against that French um, uh, hierarchy. So in France, um, novels like Therese Philosoph or even the Marquis de Sade, they are like so pristine in their commitment to certain kinds of materialist philosophy. And by materialist, I mean um, a philosophy that insists the body, like the material body, is wedded to subjectivity and human meaning and um, equal rights, basically, that they, that you know, and that the body deserves to be satisfied in what it demands. Pornography is shot through with that conviction in this like unwavering way. So it more relentlessly describes sex and it also has the people having sex again this is french pornography talking to each other all the time <laughs> like while it, like in the marquis de sade like while people are having sex with one one another they're explaining the philosophical meaning of the exact sex act they're happen they're having <laughs> so yeah so if one man is um is ejaculating into another man's rectum, he's saying exactly why, like why it's not a vagina and why the ejaculation is happening inside and not outside. Like it's really strict in a way. It's amazing. Um, in England, things are like loosey-goosey. It's kind of like, ah, like on one page, you're gonna read some anti-church, anti-political something. And like two pages later, that same character will be like going to Sunday services <laughs> or, you know, praising British politics. Like it's, it's, um, it's just less committed to any one philosophical stance and it's much more casual. It's much more vernacular. It's actually, I think, a more accessible and popular form of pornography than the French was, which I think was written for highly educated, politicized people. Um, and because British pornography is sort of less disciplined in that way, it goes in and out of sex acts, right? Like, so you'll, you might be for 50 pages just following some young hero, you know, through Brussels while he's on his grand tour, you know, and it just, it might be just him and his friends doing mischievous things. And then, oops, they're in a brothel and, uh, women are, you know, masturbating in front of them and, you know, and then, and suddenly they're all having sex, you know, so there's like this way that sex comes and goes from British pornographic fiction. Um, whereas in French pornographic fiction, it's like you're locked in a dungeon or a convent or a libertine boudoir. And like, it's almost like a school, you know, for like sex and philosophy. And in England, the pornographic heroes tend to be just like meandering around having sex in taverns and, um, fields and farmhouses and brothels and things like that. So it's really very different. 
Goodness, it sounds like it. Um, and in terms of yeah. content, I know you talked about this quite a lot in the first chapter, but what were detachable genitals and how were they contested in 18th century pornography? Yeah. So in the literal sense, detachable genitals were strap-ons or glass or ivory dildos that uh, usually by the literature, women would use alone or with one another. Um, so they were detachable in the sense that they were detached from, and th this I think is very significant, they were detached from men, like they were penises without men <laughs> that never went flaccid um, and that didn't, uh, that didn't implicate women socially, right? So if a woman was alone or with her friends using a dildo, um, whether or not that dildo penetrated her or how or how much, that penetration would not signify socially in the same way being pe penetrated by a man would, right? Which would mean that she had lost her honor. Um, that said, dildos would not have been used publicly. And I don't think most women wouldn't have told people or advertised it, but it was like a personal sort of self-enclosed um, women-centered way of experimenting with sex that did not involve men. So for that reason, I think it's it's highly significant. Um, but I use the term detachable genitals in a more experimental way in the book as well. Um, and what I mean sometimes by that phrase is that when you're reading literary texts and you're reading descriptions of sex and how sex happens, whether between two people gendered as women or um, what we would call a heterosexual couple, sometimes the literary description will stop attaching genitals to people, if that makes sense. So sentences, this is where I'm like, you know, a literary scholar, I'm a nerd, but um, sentences will literally build themselves to make you not know where those lips are referring to labia or um, what powerful tool, meaning a penis, is attached to whom. Like personal pronouns like his uh, penis or her finger or her vagina fall away. And it might be like a finger, a penis. Mm -hmm. a vagina um, and when you from the you know from the perspective of sort of literary analysis when you read that way those parts are taken away from the people right and the genders and the social identities that they're attached to so you're reading this kind of free-floating um jumble of nouns <laughs> that are coming that are meeting up and coming away and I don't have any one conclusion to draw from that but but one thing that I think is that authors were trying to imagine in those dense little parts of literary texts they were almost trying to imagine what bodies could do if they weren't attached to society <laughs> you know like what if what if the penis isn't gendered male what if the vagina isn't gendered female by a by a personal pronoun um by a feminine personal pronoun um, what do we see if we imagine genitals kind of apart from social identities? And to me, that's like what is potentially liberating about pornography or potentially might, you know, ask us to think about something impossible to imagine, right? Because we can't really imagine ourselves beyond our social identities most of the time. Um, but I think pornography exactly because it looks at genitals and insists on looking at them like in action actually has the capacity to make us think that way. Um, and I think that uh, I'm on more tenuous ground here because I'm not a digital media or visual media scholar, but I think pornography today, which does that, you know, it puts it, it it'll, you know, sort of close up um, on genitals 
where you can't see the people, their faces or the rest of their bodies that they're attached to has the potential to do the same thing. Like it makes us look at this thing that almost becomes scientific, you know, if we think about it a particular way. Um, and if, if we wonder what that image contains, we can just think like, what, how is that body part being defined by this external kind of superstructure that we live in? Um, how does that body part create, why does it create an identity in a person? Um, why do we think it's uh, static? Like, why do we believe in binary gender? You know, I don't know. It can just like lead to all kinds of thought experiments um, in my view. And I think the 18th century is particularly creative and, uh, you know, experimental about those questions. Definitely. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So in what ways did pornography at the time protest a gender binary? So there were non-binary protagonists for sure in the 18th century, and some of them would wear strap-on dildos. They would use them as part of their identity. They would pass as different genders um, and have like satisfying, in some cases, emotional and sexual relationships with people gendered women, right? So um, a very famous adventure narrative called The Female Husband by Henry Fielding, which is from 1746, um, is about a real historical figure whose name was Mary Hamilton, who we know through prison records and things was a man socially in many different ways and seduced women and did this by using a strap on. Um, so that text, which it can sound at moments like it is transphobic, I don't think is ultimately because it it experiments with the it it admits and refers to the protagonist um as a non-binary person like using multiple kinds of pronouns for Mary um yeah and the 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 protagonist is definitely I think praised for their guile and innovation and um uh, mischievousness and adventuresome spirit, right? And cleverness. So that's a really concrete example um, of how the gender binary was protested simply by making a non-binary person the protagonist and ultimately, I think, applauding their, or at least finding really remarkable their willingness to live the way they did. Um, but I also think, again, going back to what I was saying about genital contact, um, and the way that in pornography genitals can float away from people. I think that genders are sometimes, you know, I think authors were trying to separate genders from uh, sexual coupling. And, and, you know, most notably this happened for women, right? Who were arguing against, you know, becoming rape victims or becoming wives. Like women were searching, this doesn't really answer your question about gender binaries, but women were arguing against the gendered, rigidness of their lives. They wanted other, and this doesn't just happen in pornography, this happens in all kinds of fiction and philosophy. Um, they wanted other kinds of choices. They wanted to go to schools, you know, institutions of learning. They wanted to become nuns. They wanted to just stay single and like manage their own money if they were lucky enough to have it. They wanted to own businesses. Like they want, they were just people, you know, who wanted to do these things. And so um, if we think about gender 
including those social roles, women expressing a desire for those social roles was a way of protesting the gender binary, you know, because those things were gendered male in the period. But again, because pornography can link those kinds of desires, that is social desires in women, to the sex they were having, it shows that it's all connected. Um, so that's kind of a of an evasive but important way to answer your question. Um, and then I would just add, um, again, a more concrete answer to your gender binary question. There are texts about what the 18th century called hermaphrodites, what we would call intersex people now, um, that read as highly offensive to, uh, you know, our sensibility now, I think they're, um, they refer, they denigrate, you know, the identity of quote unquote, the hermaphrodite. But if you read them, if you read sections of them, where the life of a certain intersex person is described, and the kinds of sexual pleasure they wanted, or the kinds of sexual bonds they formed, they're treated very sympathetically in like small episodic moments in these larger treatises, that will elsewhere call them quote unquote monsters or will treat them violently. So I feel like um, a recognition that intersex existed was and was real and viable and pleasure filled was in these texts that then also ended up making these really normative, um, heteronormative, particularly uh, platforms. Um, but yeah, this is, and this is where 18th century literature is just bananas because it is inconsistent. It, it's, you know, the tone of how an intersex person is described on one page will just shift completely two pages later. But I don't think that means we discount those moments where um, we, we can perceive like non-binary thinking. That's absolutely fascinating. So you write that pornography protests binaries, divisions, and hierarchies, circulating skeptical anti-heteronormative discourse. I thought that was such a great sentence. So in what ways did this reflect enlightenment ideals? To what extent is pornography revolutionary? It's explicitly revolutionary in the French context, right? Um, which I'm not going to talk about because I'm not a historian there, but but that's where like it is connected to the literal political sentiment that led to a revolution. So we would have to think about British pornography differently um, if we're going to think about it in terms of revolution. And I don't, I don't tend to think of it quite that way. Um, protesting, yes, but revolution, not so much. And that just might be because it's English, you know, it's it's English and British, and there wasn't a revolution kind of percolating in the same way as the French. But in terms of it being an enlightenment genre the way that social identities are interrogated in pornography um that men's privilege is explicitly recognized um in sex acts the way that women are um trying to make claim to new social identities um and to aspire to those that is you know that appeals to enlightenment terminology and that relies on enlightenment concepts of like the individual and the subject and sovereignty and things like that but in some ways, it's not really an, an enlightenment genre, or it doesn't conform to what how we think about enlightenment philosophy, because it also really, I don't think it's very, in some ways, it's not very liberal. Like, it really doesn't believe in the liberal individual, because what sex usually does is shows people coming together and the messiness of the boundaries of the self. Um, and often in its strongest feminist um, moments, pornography is showing women 
together sort of talking about collective identity, in fact, um, like recognizing that it's only in coalition and uh, sort of collectivism that you can even discover the roots of your own oppression. And, you know, it sounds very second wave, but like that really does happen. And I think that some of that defies the um the enlightenment edict that sort of the individual is the um is the irreducible unit of society like i'm not sure that pornography believes that because it doesn't show lone people roving around the world it's constantly pulling those people toward messy intersections and messy conjoinings and then asking what happens in those moments um so yeah i think i mean the enlightenment is a term that is so um deeply contested and interrogated in 18th century studies now, I think very rightly, that I would be extremely hesitant to say that pornography has really much to do with the Enlightenment, except to pull on its terms, like I said earlier, kind of opportunistically, like when it wants to, like when it wants to make a case for rights or sovereignty, it will adopt Enlightenment thinking, and then we'll dispose of it just as quickly. Um, and I'm I'm glad for that. And I think that one of the reasons pornography can be maybe progressive or even radical is that it's not only thinking according to Enlightenment terms, because as we I think all know, the Enlightenment is what justified Enlightenment discourse justified not only sexism but the slave trade empire, colonialism, right, genocide. So these are not terms that I think any of us really want to validate in a in an uncritical way and i think pornography sort of you know recognize that kind of philosophy as an enclosed um system that is not the totality of 18th century thought or experience um and that's definitely how the enlightenment is being treated now it's kind of amazing the enlightenment used to just stand in for 18th century like when i was an undergraduate i took a course called enlightenment literature and i think back on it now and i'm like we were reading afra ben and like Henry Mackenzie, like we were reading stuff that, had, you know, had very little to do with the Enlightenment, but back then that just referred to a time period. And I think now we're recognizing, yeah, that it, in fact, it refers to an ideology that we want to be very wary of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's totally fair. So how did pornography mm -hmm. change during the 19th century? So on the face of it, it becomes much more condensed sexually. So there's just a lot more sex in it. It becomes seemingly much more misogynistic, um, a lot more sexual violence with a lot less protest. Um, and it's, it's, it's gross to even talk about, but like one main conceit of, uh, heterosexual Victorian pornography is, um, a woman having sex against, you know, having non-consensual sex, um, or being made to have non-consensual sex and then ending up loving it. Right. And then becoming a kind of person who never resists sex and never says no to sex and looks for it everywhere. So that is a really uncomfortable, <laughs> unpleasant example of the misogyny of um, Victorian pornography. Um, it also becomes cheaper. It becomes differently published. There are lavish, expensive, illustrated editions of pornography published in the 19th century. But then there are also very cheap, like serialized you know, what we would now call magazines or periodicals that you could buy very cheaply. So it started to be differentiated at different audiences. And um, some historians, Lisa Seigel is one of them, believe that it's exactly this increased access to pornography that made all the, you know, the sort of the moral police go crazy. <laughs> and because, you know, the laboring classes were going to start reading it and, oh, no, what if, 
you know, what if working people realize they too are allowed to take pleasure in reading about sex? Um, so yeah, in all of those ways, it becomes a little bit more, um, it becomes more readily available, but also more highly criminalized. So pornographers are getting sent to prison, they're being brought up on charges, booksellers are being raided all the time, like that stuff starts going on. All that said, even though manifestly the narratives are more concentrated, they seem less socially aware, they seem less socially critical. Um, the way I research is to read like every single sentence of every single book. Like I don't skim and go, oh yeah, that's kind of gross and misogynistic and violent. Therefore, I'm not going to deal with it. You know, like I think our jobs are like to deal with the things that don't fit our thesis and then say, well, what do I do? Um, so in the course of doing that and reading these books carefully, I really paid attention to like, so in the 18th century where there might be a digression for 10 pages of a rape victim, um, blaming her, uh, the person who assaulted her, calling for his arrest, um, explaining all the ways her life was now changed by this thing that happened to her. Um, in the Victorian period, I actually don't think that goes away. I think it gets shortened, condensed, and it looks a lot more like more violent and more uncomfortable. So it's like harder to read. Like when a woman is trying to resist something, um, it's so much less comic than in the 18th century that it is just more difficult to cope with. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. And every reader of those books has to move through these moments of like, um, again, this is like uncomfortable. It's not fun to talk about, but like these really detailed descriptions of how men physically overpower women, um, you know, and, and rape them. And so like, I don't simply think that was appealing to every reader, you know, mm -hmm. and second wave feminists would totally say that it was, they'd say, you know, most heterosexual, most heterosexes rape and pornography is a documentary of rape. Like that's, that was the anti-porn position like in the 1970s and 80s. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think every man or woman who read those pornographic texts thought, well, gee, that's how I want to have sex. I think like it raised ethical questions, right? It 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 forced them to read um prose that showed someone saying no and for very principled reasons not wanting to have sex. And I think if we ignore that and just say, oh, that text eroticizes rape we're skipping what the text actually tells us about what, what constitutes rape. Um, so anyway, long, there's a long answer, but I think the con like the social conscience of pornography in the 19th century gets so like boiled down, literally like distilled that it can be harder to see, but I think it's still there. And I think it's hard to make a text or make a pornographic image that doesn't have some reference to conflict or, you know, social identities in general. Mm, absolutely. And a lot of Victorian pornography, um, I mean, it does get really disturbing. Like, uh, you know, of course, as you mentioned, there's there's a lot of rape in it. I mean, I don't think that we should necessarily assume that everyone thought that this was a good idea. How much do you think it was just like kind of shocking for the sake of it? A fair amount. Um, I mean, you know, writing is always an exploration. You know, creative, imaginative writing is always an experiment with what's thinkable, you know, um, and, you know, there are, there are, um, there's the great media studies scholar, Laura Kipnis, who writes on modern forms of pornography. Her thesis is that, um, I'm not sure I totally agree with this, but it's, it's kind of hard to dispute that like 
repression creates desire. I mean, we can, whatever Freud said that, but she, you know, specific to pornography, her argument is sort of that pornography's investment is not just to show sex, it's to explore the, the boundary of culture. It's like to go to the end and say, what's there? You know, like what's at the limit of what we can say is tolerable. And that's, I think, that, that goes a long way toward explaining some of the things we see in Victorian pornography, but in pornography today as well. And it also explains why pornographies in different cultures have different things that are the shocking thing. I would venture to say that depending on where a person is culturally and geographically, um, the thing that is unthinkable in any given society is going to be different. Um, so in the, so back to the French 18th century, the convent, right? Watching priests fuck nuns. It was like, <laughs> that's at the edge of what most people wanted to contemplate. Um, and, and there it was, like that makes up a, a large chunk of, um, of French pornography of that period. Um, so I do think, to get back to your question, sure, it's shock value. I think there was in a novel like um, Sins of the Cities of the Plain, which is a novel written in the 1880s um, and very had a very kind of small print run, um, privately printed. It almost seems like a catalog. Do you know what I mean? Of like how many different um, sexual experiments could be collected in one book. Um, it's a slim book. It's not huge, but it just like rapid fire moves from um, bestiality to rape, to um, vaginal sex, to sodomy. Like, it's just, it's just like, it's all there. And it's most often discussed as a queer text because the narrator is a male sex worker. Um, but, but other kinds of sex are in there um, and, you know, and, and group sex and all kinds of things. So I think part of it, yeah, is just this effort to collect and, and make a book burst with sexual possibility. Um, and that's going to include things that we may, that, that are, you know, offensive to our sensibilities for sure. Given how, how offensive some of this is, you know, I mean, you can see mm -hmm. why, why people would kind of push back on it. Right. So, I mean, there's still debate about whether or not pornography is harmful to women. Uh, but in chapters two and four, you do look at the ways in which pornography can express feminist ideals, uh, both in the 18th century and, and into the 20th. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, in, in what ways can pornography be progressive? Yeah, it gives women opportunities to protest sex and, and um save one another from sex that they don't want, um, to have sex with each other instead of men, um, to use sex as a way to question men's social dominance. That's all my, my book is shot through with that, especially in the second chapter. But, but what I'd say more pressingly is that, um, the feminist impulse of contemporary pornography is really an emphasis on sex worker, uh, activism and the recognition today, um, that that the people making pornography are the people we should be talking to about whether it's harmful or not. Um, so there are uh, there's a um, two scholars come to mind. Um, I'm just big on attributing. This is like this is one of my feminist impulses. It's just to attribute, you know, um, give a shout out to the people whose work I've learned from. But Heather Berg has a book called Porn Work, and Marielle Miller Young has a book called A Taste for Brown Sugar um, about Black women. Uh, pornography performers in particular, but those two books absolutely center their understanding of pornography in labor and on um, the labor of sex workers in particular. And they neither of those of those scholars will make any claims about 
um, what pornography is without referring to the actual people who make it. And to me, that's a deeply feminist way of understanding pornography and, and should make us look at pornographic texts differently. Um, because if we believe the old feminist anti-porn position, it said the women in pornography can't possibly know what's happening to them. Um, it is all rape. It is all coercion. And there can be nothing of any social value in that text. And if that woman is saying it was okay, she can't possibly account for herself. <laughs> you know, there was just an erasure of the actual women doing sex work. Um, and I'm not saying there weren't women coerced in the making of pornography and aren't now. I'm certainly not saying that. But I am saying that we can't jump to conclusions about what is in a text that features real people without some account or some research into what those how those people describe their work and why they do it. Um, and those two scholars are doing that. So I, I think that the feminist kind of um, content of pornography now, even though I don't really write about this in my book, um, comes from a, rec a feminism that recognizes sex work as an enduring part of our culture and the sex worker as a specialist in that kind of labor. Um, in the book, I in the last chapter of my book, I sort of What's the, I meditate in my fourth chapter. It takes me to the 20th century, which I, you know, I do not usually research or write about. So it was, a, it was an interesting and challenging chapter to write, but I meditate there on why second wave feminism was so allergic to pornography, like why the conclusions that second wave feminists drew had to be so oppositional um, to a genre that featured women so centrally, you know, that is kind of counterintuitive when you think about it. Um, and of course, there are a lot of historical reasons for this. But but the thing that I notice as a myself, a close reader, like a literary historian, what I notice is that in much second wave feminist writing, there is deep genital description, like Susan Brown Miller and Anne Cote and um, Andrea Dworkin. I mean, the the queen of them all, you know, their, their anti-pornography writing described sex almost pornographically, like it thought about the shapes of bodies and how they come together and what that looks like. And so it just like as a as a an analyst of writing, it surprised me that the content of some second wave pornography was genital in the way that pornography itself is relentlessly gen genital. And so yeah, I kind of read those discourses beside one another and ask, what if feminism had been able to look at pornography as a place where women's bodies could have been explored, where their genital experience could have been valued differently or represented differently, or could there be other ways of interpreting sex than the ones that they constantly put forward, you know, that all sex is, is in pornography is rape and so on and so forth. Um, and it's kind of like a, you know, a theoretical scholarly question that, I, that I'm asking there, but it seems to me that if we could discover, rediscover the affinity between feminism and pornography, we could look at pornography as like the really rich repository that it is. Um, there are many feminists making pornography now. There are women making women-only pornography. If we could start to recognize this huge landscape of like information that's in those texts, um, like we can learn things not only about the people in pornography and the people looking at pornography, but like what sex is doing in our world. Like, where is it happening? What kinds of power are we giving it? Do we want to give it that power? Um, I don't know. There's like, there's, you know, limitless questions we can ask from that. Oh, there really are. Oh my goodness. 
Now, um, I know uh, before we started recording, we were talking about romance novels a little bit. We both have a kind of a background in, in romance as readers, certainly. So in chapter three, you draw parallels between pornography and the modern novel, particularly through the exquisite masochism of narrative breaks. I just love that phrase. So can you tell us a little bit more about this connection? How is the, the modern novel or the modern romance novel uh, related to 18th century pornography? a great question. And I want to attribute ex exquisite masochism to Claire Jarvis. Um, that's the title of a book she wrote about 19th century um, novels and pornography. And uh, that was a very important phrase for me in my 19th century chapter. Um, so in the point I make in that chapter is that it's in the 19th century that pornography as a term gets invented, like as a category of art and literature. Um, and therefore, it's also the period in which the novel, like the Victorian social novel, you know, like George Eliot, Charles Dickens, like the big novel people separate from por pornography. Like there's in the 18th century, these things crossed over. As I said, they could have they might have been sold beside one another. Um, the, the books might have looked a lot like one another or sounded a lot like one another by the Victorian period, as I understand it, there is like a deep like detachment between pornography and what we recognize as kind of the um, socially attuned novel. So one way to answer your question is to say that there's a huge disconnection <laughs> between the two. Um, but Claire Jarvis's point in, in Exquisite Masochism is actually that, and it's a very similar way to, to how I read, that Victorian novels do contain a lot of sexual information. It just looks different than it does in pornography. So she kind of um, analyzes like freeze frames of erotic tension where you can like read a sexual dynamic in a scene that doesn't show you genital sex. Mm -hmm. And I kind of read the flip of that, which is in these condensed descriptions of sex, we can see a big social architecture at work. So, um, so yeah, my my answer to you is that there's a, a deep connection. I think that I think everything's about sex. <laughs> I think there's very little literature and art that isn't somehow like referencing sex. Um, but that these conversations suffuse both genres, but they do do it through sort of different techniques where like fiction that doesn't think it's pornographic, whether Victorian or today might unspool sex in a way that's like more dispersed through a book where it doesn't look like a quick sex act, you know, the way it would look in pornography. Um, but it doesn't mean it isn't concerned, you know, with the same kinds of questions pornography might be about pleasure, about desire, about who gets to have sex with whom and is it okay and will the world punish you for it and all of that stuff. Um, but I think like to th think about more modern um, writing, um, I'm just thinking about, I haven't written anything like about this, though I sometimes think about it, but I'm thinking of novels by like Raven Leilani and Sally Rooney and um, others. And uh, I call them, I think of them as millennial novels, like novels, you know, written by millennial people. So, so people younger than me, um, the sex scenes are not what we would conventional, conventionally call pornographic, but like they're very interested in where sex is happening and how so like um Leilani's novel Luster opens if I if my memory serves with the protagonist at work having phone sex with someone who I think is married who she has a violent kind of violent relationship with um and I mean it, it just like it you know you you start the novel and you're just like okay where is this going and it goes these fantastically sexually sort of disruptive places and not all the sex is comfortable to read it's not it's it's vexing um 
and it's infused with racial difference and violence and class difference and you know economic precarity and all kinds of stuff. So this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but that novel is entirely about sex. It is very much about how sex propels a protagonist through the world and how it both sometimes seems to grant her pleasure and power, but always has a consequence of also disconnecting her from like social safety nets, you know, um, in a really literal sense. So I think that modern fiction draws, whether it knows it or not, draws a great deal from like porn old pornographic traditions of like putting sex at the center of social um, forces, you know, and kind of showing it to be a vortex of how people come together and then depart one another changed you know, mm -hmm. for better or for worse, and asks about the ethics of a world that like lets people get changed so much by one act, you know? Yeah, it's a lot to think about. It is a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> for sure. Gosh, this is so amazing. I could talk to you all day, but of course I better give you some oh. of your day back. So uh, <laughs> where can we find more about you and your work? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I keep a website. Um, it's pretty rudimentary, but it's a website, KathleenLuby.com. Um, I'm on Twitter sometimes at Kathy Luby and Instagram as well at Kathy Luby. Um, and my book can be purchased. It's again, it's called What Pornography Knows. It can be purchased at the Stanford University Press website and or your local independent bookseller. That's always a, a plug I like to give. But if you go to the Stanford site, you can type in the promo code Luby20 for 20% off. Um, and it's in paperback there. So that makes it nice and affordable. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have a faculty page at St. John's University's website where I teach in Queens. Amazing. Again, Kathy, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Thank you. I've had a great time. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kathleen Luby for stopping by. Her new book is What Pornography Knows, Sex and Social Protest Since the 18th Century, and it's out now. You can find her at KathleenLuby.com or on Twitter and Instagram at KathleenLuby. Another huge thank you to our brilliant patrons on Patreon. Big hugs and so much gratitude to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. This week on Patreon, we also have a bonus episode for tiers two and three, talking about the real history behind Netflix's hit show, Bonfire of Destiny, which is centered around the tragic fire that happened at the Bazaar de la Charité in 1897. Be sure to check it out. If you would like to join the fun, check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. As always, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. You can also check out our seven years of archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there as well. There's a lot of great stuff up there, so stop by and say hello. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.